Some of you might remember, some of you certainly won't, but some of you might remember that about a year ago, um, I talked a little bit about a, a, a sort of a mess that happened in my life. Um, I, I got that thing in the mail that we all love to get, and that is a jury summons. You know those things? You get them in the mail, and you look at them, and you think, oh no, how am I going to get out of this, Right? And I did that, you know, I did the, how do I get out of this? I called, I I did all, but to no avail, um, I wasn't going to be able to easily get out of it. So I did what we all do. I drove, uh, if you're in San Bernardino County, which I live in San Bernardino County, uh, then you drive down to the new courthouse. Praise God, it's the new courthouse because the old one was a little bit dingy. If you go to the jury room in the old courthouse, um, you sort of felt like um, you were in the basement of some haunted house. The new one actually is a really nice room, a really nice space with nice courtrooms upstairs. And I was, as usual uh, on those days, I was one of, I think, five sections and I was number four, the fourth section. And I thought what we all think, we usually when we think jury summons, we think, okay, I'm going to go in and hopefully I'm going to get dismissed like right away or they'll take a little while and maybe somebody will settle and then we'll get out or, you know, maybe at the most it'll be like three, four hours. And right from the beginning, they actually said to us, you folks in group number four can go and come back like two hours later So I already thought, okay, we're on a good road. But what I didn't know was that they were actually interviewing all five sections of jury groups that day for one case. Because it was a case that was six weeks long, they figured. With all the different testimony and all the different stuff going on, they were figuring about a six-week schedule for the jury. And they thought, or for the trial, and they thought, okay, it's going to take us a while to get... 12 people plus three alternates who can fulfill that duty because you know how that works. Some of you have only so much um, jury time through your employment. You can get like three days. Some can get like 10 days. Um, unfortunately, here at the river, we have unlimited days. So, uh, But we... Um, you, you go through that whole process, and they had gone through that whole process with, um, with these other, the other three groups beforehand, and um, then they had gone through, they started the process with us, and it took a while, and they bring people up, and they seat them in the seats, and then they interview them, and they ask them questions, and they talk about, you know, where they worked, what's their experience with trial, and all that other sort of stuff, and then the attorneys can dismiss. So if they don't like something that they've heard in one of the potential jurors, they say, juror number two or juror number seven, you're dismissed, and those people get up with a big smile on their face, get a pink slip from the bailiff, and leave. Well, I was there that day, and um, there were 10 jurors that were filled, and there were two spots plus two alternates that they were filling with the last, or with the, with the group of people to see if they could fill those last two spots. And I was the fourth person that they called. I think I was number 49 or something like that. They called me 49. I go up, I sit in the fourth chair. I'm thinking, okay, I'm still going to be fine because they have three or two chairs in front of me. Two of those people got dismissed, so suddenly I'm sitting in the 12th chair. I'm sitting in the 12th chair, but I'm still thinking to myself, I have a great comfort. I'm a pastor. Who wants a pastor on a jury if you are a district attorney? Mercy and grace and love, that's what I represent. And district attorney wants justice, right? 
So they go through the process, and the judge asked me some questions, and then the defense attorney asked me some questions, and the prosecuting attorney asked me some questions. She asked me a lot of questions. And she wanted to know how I, as a pastor, saw justice. Appropriately so. She's on the side of finding justice for the guilty. So I said to her, I said, well, of course, I believe in justice. And she said, well, what about forgiveness? And I said, well, I believe in forgiveness too. She said, well, tell me about how justice and forgiveness go together, which gave me an opportunity to share a glimpse of the gospel. I didn't bring out Jesus yet, but I at least shared a glimpse of the gospel. I said, well, really, you know, God is called, God is forgiveness, and he calls us as people to live into that forgiveness, but he's also organized the state for the purpose of meeting out justice. That was a bad answer. <laughs> because... Immediately following that question, then the judge goes through the process of asking the attorneys, uh, do you want to dismiss anybody? And the defense attorney didn't want to dismiss anybody. But that's, he's not my ace in the hole. It's, the, it's the, the prosecuting attorney. And I look at her, and she looks over at the jury, and she says, I'm comfortable with this jury, judge. And he says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, may be seated. And I'm aghast. I'm sitting there terrified. Six weeks of my life. I have things to do. I have, I have family stuff. There's lots of stuff going on in ministry. There's things going on at home. There's things going on around the world that I would like to be a part of rather than sitting in, and I ended up in seat number eight, seat number eight in the jury pool. But that's what happened. And I'm sitting there in those moments after the judge said those words, the jury may be seated. I'm thinking, what in the world have I got myself into? At that point, you don't have a choice. And it was a hard several weeks. It was, a, it was tension here for the, the um, church. Praise God. We had people like Nick and Will and Greg and others who could step in and take over a lot of roles and responsibilities that I wasn't here to fulfill. And praise God, I have a patient wife who took care of a lot of things that I couldn't. We had friends and people gather. It just helped. And it was a difficult trial because it involved a child and some abuse and there were hard things that we heard. It was, it was a challenging time and I certainly didn't know in that moment when I was seated, what I was in for. In our passage this morning from Mark chapter 2, we have a similar sort of experience, except much more so in the life of Levi. Levi is a simple man. Well, not a simple man in the sense that he is a tax collector. And a tax collector was somebody in the culture of Israel at the time who was, in essence, detestable to most people because tax collectors were considered swindlers and cheats. They got wealthy on the backs of people that they charged the taxes to because the Rome would say to them, here's how much tax you need to charge. And they would say, okay, we're going to collect that plus 30%. And that 30% is going to be for us. So you can imagine how people felt about the wealth of tax collectors. And here's all of a sudden the story of one in the kingdom of God. Let's begin reading at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, 
Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, this is a, an interesting couple of verses for a number of different reasons. First of all, um, remember last, last week we talked about Jesus being in Capernaum. It's a small seaside town um, in the province of Galilee. Or pro, yeah, province of Galilee. And it was too small really to hold the crowds who would come to hear Jesus. So Jesus goes out into the countryside. And as you can well imagine, in places like that, there are roads. And this is actually an important road that Jesus is walking on because ultimately it becomes the road from, from places like, like Babylon and eastern Syria into Jerusalem. So it becomes a trade road. Uh, Damascus, ultimately, where Paul would, um, was on his journey when he was blinded. It is also to the northeast. If you take uh, northeast Damascus to Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was falls right in between. And so it's an important road, such an important road that there were tax collectors on it. Tax collectors would set up a spot on the road. And people who are passing, this is a sense like the fast track of the day, you would have taxes that were taken um, as a tariff for using the road. And if you were a trader or somebody bringing goods to sell in Jerusalem or goods coming out of Jerusalem, then you could be taxed by the tax collector on the road. And Jesus is walking along with the people on the road and they come to this place where Levi, the tax collector, is set up. And there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of people around Jesus. And this really unique thing happens. In the midst of hundreds and thousands of people around him, Jesus looks at Levi, one, the tax collector sitting in the booth, and he says, follow me. And we have no idea what Jesus saw in Levi. We have no idea if there was something special about him physically. It certainly doesn't seem that way. Because Jesus is who Jesus is. He is the son of God. He is God himself. He has an ability to see hearts. We assume that the connection that he had with Levi was one of his heart. But he, he called to him and he said, follow me. And Levi does something extraordinary. And he's, the reason it's extraordinary, because not everyone did it. We know there's other stories. When Jesus told people to follow him and they didn't, Jesus says, follow me to Levi. And Levi does what? Gets up and follows him. And you, I mean, that literally is about a 10 second long. Jesus walking up, looking at Levi, follow me. Levi's like, There's no way that Levi could have any idea of the implications of that 10 seconds of delight. All of a sudden, in that moment, everything changed. And the truth is, friends, that many of us know that moment. We know that 10 seconds. We know that space, that place, that time, that voice that heart move that God made in us to look at us. And we look at ourselves and we wonder what he saw, but he looked at us, he looked at our hearts and he said, follow me, follow me. And if you know the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, you've heard that voice. You've heard the call. And it's a command actually, follow me is what we call an imperative. It's a command, you've heard it. Acknowledged it and obeyed it. 
you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, this whole process of calling disciples was a traditional rabbinic process. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And because he was a rabbi, a teacher, that was the process for disciples. Finding disciples is that you would, as a rabbi, and there's a legend, it's a legend that you would go, uh, if you were getting um, disciples or followers from, from Nazareth, you would climb a mount called Mount Arbel, you could see the whole province. And on the top of Mount Arbel, on a day you would pray, Yahweh, Father, lead me where I might go, that I might follow, find those who you call to follow me and to follow you. And the rabbi would go down then into Nazareth and look around. But he would move from town to town and probably with this agenda. He would look around with this agenda saying, well, who has potential? Who are the, in essence, the stars of the synagogue? Ones who with some more training and with some more learning could be really good. What do we hear? We hear teachers and scribes of the law. People who could be a part of the temple work, the rabbinic word, maybe the pharisaical work of the Pharisees. They would find followers. They would look for the special and the unique. But we see with Jesus' calling of Levi that none of the tradition is at work. Because Levi is what? He's a tax collector. He's, he's not one of the elite. He's not one that if I went to James Verhoeven in his class and say, tell me who in your history class has potential. He, he, he probably knows those who have the potential, either an intellectual or a social or an emotional potential. Jesus isn't looking for the potential that we would name in a classroom. He's looking for the potential of a heart. And he sees that in Levi. And he sees it in you and I, who know the grace of Christ. We are the called of God in Jesus Christ. And the qualities that he is looking for are qualities of the heart. And he's found them in us to be ones that through his grace, he's called us then to go and follow him. Now, rabbinic tradition said this, if you're a follower of a rabbi, what would you do? You would follow that rabbi, but then you would also do what that rabbi does. If the rabbi washed, you washed. If the rabbi ate, you ate. If the rabbi worked, you worked. Now Jesus then calls his disciples in Levi into some doing in the verses ahead. Let's keep reading. In verse 15, we read this. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house... Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now we see this this interesting thing that Jesus does with Levi. Not only does he call him just from the side of the road, he's a tax collector, certainly not one of the elite who would usually be called a disciple, but he chooses him, but then he's like already going with him at about 100 miles an hour. He says, okay, Levi, now you're one of my disciples. I'm eating at your house, which actually isn't that unusual because for Jews, hospitality is important. If somebody needed a place to stay, a place to eat, you welcomed them into your home. It was the expectation that you were a shower of hospitality. And if that person brought folks, then you welcomed them too. Now, Levi is put in a little bit of a spot, right? 
Now, the first spot that he's in is he has Jesus, all right? Well, Jesus comes, and Jesus is his new rabbi. Well, that's fitting that he eats in his home. And Jesus has other followers, the disciples. Yes, the disciples should come into his home. But then we hear about these others. You get the tax collectors. Well, certainly Levi would be comfortable with those because, well, he, he is one. So they would have something to talk about. But then we get the sinners. And we know that the sinners are there because they follow Jesus. Not because necessarily they are friends of Levi. So all of a sudden, Levi goes from, I'm collecting taxes today, to hosting a dinner party for his rabbi, the disciples, his friends, the tax collectors, and the sinners. And you had to wonder if he sat there going, what in the world just happened? Now, I'm a tax collector, so I have some money to be able to host this dinner, but good grief. I was just in the side of the road today, and now all of a sudden I got a house full of folks. Now, that would be one thing for Levi to think that. But we know also that the disciples are there. And who are the disciples? In chapter 1, we know that Peter and Andrew, James and John have been called so far, for sure, as well as some others. So we know that there are several disciples with Jesus. And they were not tax collectors. They were fishermen. So they're sitting there at the dinner table looking around going, really, how in the world did we get here? Because fishermen didn't hang out with tax collectors. Why? Because when you caught a fish, brought it into your boat, went to shore, and pulled into the dock at Capernaum, who was usually sitting there waiting for you? The tax collector. Because fishing was taxed. And so for them to be in the home of a tax collector would certainly not be an exciting activity and something they were looking forward to, but it's, what do you do when you're the disciple of a rabbi? You go where they go and do as they do. So they did. Sometimes, following Jesus even if we are a fervent follower of him, calls us into some challenging places. And we can wonder in those moments how we got there. I was a 22-year-old, snot-nosed, didn't know how to buckle my own pants youth pastor a long time ago. I mean, I didn't know anything. Nothing. I I was just, I had no training for it. I just sort of got called into it. So all of a sudden, I'm a youth pastor. All right, okay, I'll be a youth pastor. Let's figure this out. And in the church that I was in, there was this woman. She was one of those women that if somebody walked by the church, then they were, they were the called of God. So she would like literally grab them and pull them into the church. Come on in. And these guys were, they, they said, yeah, we're looking for a cup of water and to go to the bathroom. And she said, well, good, come on in. And now you're here, I want you to meet the youth pastor. And it was like this holy clash. She would just basically go, here. You know, get along. So I meet these two guys who are in off the street at, at a service one, one day. And in, they're high school kids, and I'm the youth pastor, so okay, let's talk. So I begin to talk to these guys a little bit. One of them is named John, and John says, uh, uh, I asked John, I said, John, where do you go to school? 
He told me what school he went to, and I said, well, would it be okay if I come during lunchtime sometime to your school? Because the, the, the law in that school district was that you couldn't go on campus at that school unless you were visiting someone in particular. You had to schedule a meeting with that student. So now I had inroads into the school because I, I knew John. You know, I knew John. So I was going to go visit John on campus. And he said, well, you know what? Actually, I don't have lunch on campus. It's an open campus at this particular school. So we go to Taco Bell. I knew where the Taco Bell was. It was about three blocks from the school. So I'm going to go to Taco Bell. And I have no idea what I'm in for. Because if you've ever been to a, a fast food restaurant that's near a public school campus during open campus lunch, that place is just like mobbed. And I go to this Taco Bell on, I think it was a Tuesday, and there's 150 kids, 200 kids there just mobbing Taco Bell. And I go up, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to hang out with these kids. Let's see. Let's try to find them. I find John and his friend, and he says, yeah, I eat with my friends outside. Is it okay if we eat with them? And I'm like, okay, but then, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm going to get them food. I buy 20 tacos, and I go outside with John. And I do the most ridiculous thing in the world. I take the bag of 20 tacos and I set it down and I go, here, free tacos. I mean, it was like piranhas, you know? <laughs> like literally less than four seconds, all of them were gone. And I'm sitting down and I'm talking with John and his friend. And it's a good conversation. Hey, how's it going? How's your classes this morning? Let's go. Just for a minute. But then John and his friend want to talk to their other friends. So I'm just sitting there and listening. Remember, I'm 22 years old. This is the first time I've ever done a campus visit like this. I have no idea what's going on. And over here, there's a young woman and a young lady apparently on their honeymoon. At least it looked like they were. I mean, this was two high school kids going after it just... I'm sitting there going, do your mom and dad know about that? I just freaked me out. Then over here, I hear a conversation between two boys. One boy's telling his other friend, he's saying, hey, you know, I'm really excited to go to my mom's this weekend. Why are you excited to go to your mom's this weekend? I'm excited to go to my mom's this weekend because when I go to my mom's, I can have as much weed as I want. When I'm at my dad's, I can have as much booze as I want because my dad's an alcoholic and my mom's a druggie. And I'm I'm small town Canadian kid. I've never been in this world. And I'm literally in those moments sitting there going, Lord, what am I doing here? And I wasn't good at it. I wasn't I didn't know why I was there. I didn't know what the purpose was. I had no idea. I didn't know for weeks. I didn't know for months. I didn't know for years how to do that. I still don't know how to do it sometimes. How do you be Jesus in those contexts? It was so uncomfortable. It was so out of my comfort zone. And yet it was part of God's calling because this woman, using the hands of God, took this kid and me and clashed us together. Sometimes that happens. And sometimes we know how to handle it. And sometimes we don't. And we see the people who don't in the Pharisees. What do they say? Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now we look at that and of course we give the Pharisees a bad rap. We've been giving them a bad rap for centuries. 
because they are part of the crucifixion of Christ, right? They're the ones who condemned him to death. But you see, even here, the Pharisees have a good motivation for asking the question of the disciples. Why would you ask such a question? Well, remember the Pharisees are part of the temple observance, temple worship, right? They worked in the synagogues, they worked in the temple, and that was their job to do the temple work. So if you're doing temple work, if you're doing teaching work, Torahic work, working with the Torah, the sense was, well, you knew I have to be clean. If I'm not clean, it's the ceremonially clean. If I'm not clean, I can't go into temple. If I'm not clean, I can't be a part of the work of the Torah. I can't be a part of that. I would need to go through the purification in order to be welcomed back into the temple. And part of the way that you could be unclean was by rubbing shoulders with people who were unclean. Now, the meal that Jesus was having in the house of Levi was a reclining meal, meaning you were on the ground laying down close to the person next to you, rubbing shoulders. And if you touched a woman at the table who was unclean because of her period, you would be unclean. If you touched someone at the table who was in any way unclean through their vocation, through their behavior, through their activity, you would be unclean. So the the Pharisees, who were of course at a distance, looked at that and say, why would a rabbi do that? Because by doing that, he's opening up the potential for uncleanliness. We give the Pharisees a bad rap, but they actually want to obey the law, right? And obeying the law is a good thing. Do we agree? Doing what's the right thing, the good thing, the obedient thing is a good thing for us to believe is good. It's the right thing. They have the right motivation. But there's a challenge, and the challenge is in how they view the law. Because they value the observance of the law, because the law then reflects holiness in the presence of a holy God. means, in essence, I am making myself holy in the presence of holy God. Jesus saw the law differently. He values the heart of the law. And that is that obedience to God's law brings God's presence within. And if God's presence is within you, then you carry it where you go. Jesus was carrying the presence of God with himself as he was living into other dark, challenging, broken places. But the Pharisees couldn't see that. And because they can't see that, Jesus says one of the most challenging verses that I've read in Scripture in a very long time. What does he say? He says this. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then this sentence, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Does anyone else hear that verse and are challenged by it? 
I, 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 me, I'll tell you, I am. Why? Because even though I know that I am sick in places, I also consider myself part of the righteous sometimes. I consider myself as a a follower of Jesus. I can consider myself in that place of righteousness, not because of my own work, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to take credit for myself, but I'm saying I am righteous through the grace of Jesus Christ. And when I hear that verse, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I sit there and I go, "What, what about me? If I don't have any huge, massive, glaring sin in my life, is Jesus here for me? Or is he just here for those whose lives are broken and dark and a mess? Does that make that verse harder to hear for anybody? It's hard for me to hear. When Jesus says that, what I hear is that he is coming to make his people well. Now, now I can hear that from me and I can say, I know I am sick by the sin in my life. And so, yes, he has come here for me. But that does have implications. It does have impact on my heart sometimes because then I wonder about some of the tension that we can feel within the community of faith sometimes. But here's what I know. I know that if I see the law as Jesus saw the law, that it is a way in our obedience that we carry the presence of God with us. And so when we go into places that are dark and that when we are broken, then we carry with us the presence of God, which brings lightness and wholeness. It means that Jesus is calling those who are followers of him into dark, hard, and broken places. But that creates a tension. And it's a tension that I feel that we have here at the river. And I want to acknowledge it before you. Because someone said to me this morning, way to be honest. Because I said this in the first service too. And I said, well, is this something that's true? Is this an elephant in the room? And I think it is oftentimes an elephant in the room. Because we have people here at the river who have been, we'll call it simply for the sake of, of a word, righteous. For a very long time. Decades of righteousness. You have lived faithful lives. You've walked with God. You've been a part of the Christian community. You've been a part of the river. You have prayed for this place. You have been through the wars. Worship wars, split wars, fighting over carpet color, all the stuff that has gone on over the history of this place over a very long period of time. This church is over a hundred years old, folks. And some of you have been a part of this for a very long time and you feel the, a sense of ownership, a sense of community, a sense of a belonging here. And I praise God for you. I praise God for you because you equip us as a community to do amazing things. Your prayers are heard by the Lord Jesus Christ. And by your prayers, he equips us and protects us and empowers us with his Holy Spirit to do work in this community. You have supported this church financially, keeping us afloat in some very difficult times. 
You've been a volunteer in the nursery or youth ministry or Bible study teachers, or you've been a part of helping or serve MCCA or whatever it is that you have done in whatever places. Some of you have been office bearers, elders or deacons here many times. You have done wonderful work. And yet, there's other groups of people here. People who have been at the river, people who have been following Jesus for maybe four days, four months, maybe four years. And when some of those relationships happen where we have a relationship with someone who knows Jesus for the very first time and they come and that they are a part of us, it changes us, right? Because every person here makes us who we are and if someone changes, then we change. It makes us challenging. This church is changing. We are in a significant transition. I've said it before, I'll say it again. And I don't know always what that transition is. But I know sometimes it means that we need to wonder what our calling is. And some of you who have been a part of this church for a very long time have thought to yourself, with all this change, what is my calling now? How am I called to serve the people who are unlike me, maybe in their tradition, maybe in their culture, maybe in their background, maybe in their socioeconomic status, maybe even in their race or their ethnicity? How, how, what, it used to be very homogenous. It used to be very much the same. Now it's very different. How do we live into that? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know some of you have felt it. Well, we have from the text of Scripture an illustration, a metaphor that Jesus uses, right? He says, I have come for the sick, not the righteous. Well, where does sick go? If you're sick, you can go to a doctor's office, but you go to a hospital. When you go to a hospital, hopefully they can deal with whatever sickness that is. If it's cancer, they can deal with that sickness. Hopefully make things better. Got pneumonia, they can deal with that sickness. You got a cut, they can deal with that sickness, with that injury. And for us to think about this place being a hospital for those who are sick. And the truth is that even a doctor sometimes needs a hospital to get treatment. All of us need to be a part of the hospital sometimes so that we might be healed. We might be made well. We might be treated. Even me as the pastor need that regularly. I need God's people to help me be healed. But sometimes I turn back into the doctor or the nurse or the tech or the pharmacist or maybe even the candy striper. Someone who helps somewhere, somehow, some way for other people to be well. Friends, hear me. In the midst of this transition, I am so grateful for you who have been here for a very long time, praying, being faithful in your servants, servanthood, faithful in your prayers, faithful in your support. I am so grateful for you because you have built what I believe to be a healthy and good hospital. 
And we can continue to work together in that. Yes, transition is happening. Changes are going on. There are people who are a part of us now who have made us different than what we were before. But what we are becoming is increasingly beautiful. It's good. It's challenging. You know, sometimes I would just love to preach a nice little happy sermon so everyone could go away feeling just perfect and beautiful and like me. I wish you all could hear a sermon where everyone goes away liking me. But the problem is, is that every time I open up this thing, this beautiful, incredible thing, I read words like this. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. If we are going to be faithful in living out this, this is going to constantly be changing. It should be. It should be changing because you are growing. And you are growing. And I am growing. And as we grow, we change, we move. We look around and we say, Lord, now where are you at work? What is it that you are calling us to now? Change is a part of us. And I'm sorry if you're looking for comfort, if you're looking for ease. I honestly don't see it as part of the life of walking with Jesus. Remember the story of Levi. Jesus says to him, follow me. And in 10 seconds, he does it. And it's like Jesus planted a nice little holy bomb in his life. Because it completely blew it up and transformed Levi's life forever. That's what following Jesus does. Takes us to dark places. Takes us to hard places. But in the midst of that, he himself, who went with his disciples in Levi, Christ is with us. And if he is with us, he'll be against us. Let's pray. Hope of the world in Jesus Christ, we praise you for your call. And we hear it. We acknowledge it. We also acknowledge what it does to us, how it changes and transforms us, makes us uncomfortable, moves us and shakes us to the very core of our being, forces us sometimes to wonder, Lord, what is next? Lord, I I wonder that for all of us. I wonder that for myself. What is next? What is it that you are calling us to? What is it that you are leading us towards? Where, Lord, does your light need to shine? Where does your health, your grace, and your love need to come that you will call us to go? And as we, Lord, live in obedience to your law, we carry your presence with us that we might rub shoulders with the world in such a way that they might meet Jesus. 
Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you strengthen us for this task. I pray, Lord, for those who are, are here and, and wondering what their place is, wondering what their role is in the hospital of the body of Christ. What is it that you have called them to do? Have you called them to receive healing or have you called them to be a part of the healing? Lord, maybe both at the same time. I pray, Lord, that we can discern that, discern that in your wisdom. And as you strengthen us with your wisdom, that we get clarity of what it is that you call us to follow you into, that we may, in following, be faithful, and we might, in following, give you thanks. Because without you, our life, sometimes I think our our life would be boring, and I know that sounds really attractive to some of us, but we know that life with you is a life to the full, life in abundance the life that you have given to us. Lord, may we live into that life and show the world who you are. In Christ we pray, amen.